Great singing, church. The Lord is our salvation. He is our salvation, and we draw near to him today to worship him and to seek him and to love him and to pursue him with everything that we are. If you're joining us via live stream, thank you for worshiping with us this morning. If you are in our overflow room, thank you for being in there, allowing more seats in this room. Uh, what a great crowd this morning. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 7. Did you know that the term rock bottom was coined in 1884? Of course, we all know what the term means, right? Someone hits rock bottom. They've come to the lowest point that they can imagine in their life. It can't get any worse. There's no further space to fall. It's gotten as bad as it can be. Perhaps you have used that term to describe a situation that has got out of control. Perhaps you've associated that term with a health struggle or relational brokenness, or perhaps you've used that term to describe someone who is in rebellion against the one true and living God. When we talk about someone who has hit rock bottom, oftentimes we do so with great emotion, or maybe with great sadness, and oftentimes even with great frustration. And sometimes, when we speak of those we love who keep making poor choices and who seem to be at their lowest point, we try to comfort ourselves and say, well, look, they can only go one way. They can only go up from this point. But we hurt for them because we see that in our minds, they are at rock bottom. Perhaps there are situations in your life right now that you might describe as rock bottom bottom. You're on the verge of saying it or have even thought it can't get any worse than it is right now. It's where we are today in 1 Samuel chapter 7. The people of God had been rebelling for so many years. They had been doing what was right in their own eyes and not in God's eyes. When we left off last week, the ark of God had been captured, and then we see that it's been traveling, that the Philistines had brought it to multiple different places because God's hand was heavy on the Philistines as God was showing him their character, but not just the Philistines, he was showing the Israelites his character as well. Remember, it was by, the ark was brought to Beth Shemesh, and, and what happened there wasn't a helpful thing. Even the priests there, as they looked to the ark, felt the judgment of God on them, and many of them died. So it gets to Kiriath-Jerim and then to the house of Abinadab and the ark stayed there for 20 years. And friends, a lot can happen in 20 years. Israel had been at rock bottom for some time now. They were characterized by rebellion. Recall they had tried to uh, manipulate God by bringing the ark into battle and that's how it got captured in the first place. That's how the Philistines stole the ark even in the first place. But now something was different. We're going to see here in chapter 7, verse 2, that Israel was lamenting after the Lord. In other words, they were mourning after the Lord. They grieved their condition. Something was taking place. This morning, we're going to examine what really turning to the Lord looks like. So would you stand with me as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We'll be looking at the whole chapter this morning, but beginning here with the first six verses. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. 
And Samuel said to, excuse me, and the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on a hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth and they serve the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Will you pray with me? Lord, today in this room, we collectively long to hear from you. So it's our prayer that you would speak to us today. And Lord, as we look to this text and we think about repentance and we think about turning to the Lord, there are people in this room who are harboring sin in their life that need to turn from that sin. And we pray that your spirit would be heavy upon them, upon us, and that your spirit would search even into our lives to show us where we are going astray. And God, by your grace, would your spirit comfort us as we recognize sin and confess sin and turn from sin and trust in you. Lord, we long for your spirit to move in this place, in this church, in this community. And Lord, may it begin because we today are turning to you ourselves. May it not be fleeting. And we recognize our great need for you, our great need for forgiveness, our great need for holiness because of our lack thereof. And may you move in our lives today. God, would you restore relationships that are broken because of sin? Lord, would you move in our lives so that we might have fellowship with you, unbroken fellowship that had been previously broken because of sin? Would you change us, change our hearts this morning that we might be devoted to the true king, that we might follow the true king. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we consider the change in Israel, we might be wondering what brought it out. How is it that for so long they lived in rebellion to God? For so long they were doing what was right in their own eyes and not living according to the word of God, not living according to the law, not seeking the Lord, not being devoted to the Lord with their entire hearts, with their whole beings. How is it now that they were lamenting after the Lord when they were previously so satisfied in their sin? And I think we have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 3 and recall that God was with Samuel. That God had called Samuel to himself, that he had spoken to him. And then we read this illustration or this picture of what God was doing and we're told that he was not letting any of his words fall to the ground. So that all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, knew that that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. 
In other words, friends, Samuel was preaching the word of God. Samuel was speaking the word of God throughout all the land of Israel. He was faithful to proclaim the ways of the Lord and to call them to covenant faithfulness. Just because we've seen in the past several weeks or the past several chapters that the narrative have moved away from Samuel, right? It's been with the ark and it's been in all these different areas and all these different cities of the Philistines and, and then in Israel and Samuel's kind of been off mat does not mean that he has been silent. He hasn't been silent. He's been proclaiming the word of God. None of these words had fallen to the ground. And friends, it's always God's word that prepares the heart. It's always God's word that brings a change, God's spirit moving, God's word that brings about repentance, a lamenting after the Lord. And that's where we start today with real repentance. Perhaps verses three and four are really just a summary of what Samuel had been communicating to the people of Israel as he traveled around and as he had spoke God's word over the course of these past 20 years when the ark of God was in Kiriath-Jerim. And he called them to covenant faithfulness and he was calling them to return to the Lord with their whole hearts. And that's what we see with real repentance. It's not just a feeling of sadness over our sin. It's not just a feeling of sorrow because we've messed up. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that there is a sorrow according to the world. He tells us that this worldly grief ends in death because it is not properly motivated and because it doesn't lead to any genuine or true or lasting change. See, worldly sorrow is not true sorrow. It feels bad for the consequences of sin or maybe for the way that it affects others or maybe for the way that it affects your reputation, but it goes no further. But godly sorrow, godly grief over sin is different. It brings change. Real repentance, summarized by one author, would say it moves beyond wet eyes and moved feelings and stressed emotion and cast down idols and it clings to God. Notice what Samuel calls the people to. I mean, Samuel is saying, return to the Lord with all your heart. Well, what does that look like? What does it look like to return to the Lord with all your heart? It means to be devoted to, your Lord, to the Lord, to put your trust and your hope fully in him. This is about exclusivity, single-minded loyalty to God to Yahweh and that means that they have to put away their false gods that means they have to put away their idols they have to tear down the ashtaroth from among them now lest we think that this means just taking some of those wooden idols and throwing them in the fire remember they've been living in rebellion against the one true living God for a long time in other words it means that they had adopted the practices of the Canaanites there of the Philistines there. They were living in such close connection. Even though they were enemies, they had adopted so many of their religious practices. They were rebelling against the one true and living God. They were, they were immoral. They were depending on themselves and depending on others and doing what was right in their own eyes. So it was more than just taking a few idols, a few wooden carvings and throwing them in. It was a complete change of lifestyle. It was covenant faithfulness. It was turning back to the word of God and living according to God's ways and according to God's standards. It was a distinct break in how the Israelites were living. 
They were to return to the Lord with their whole hearts. They had to be different. They had to stop their sinful pursuits and stop their sinful practices. If you really want to return to the Lord, then we, you've got to serve him, Samuel would say. You've got to pursue him. You've got to worship him. You've got to trust him only. And then Samuel offers them hope. He says, look, if you'll do this, then the Lord will be on your side. He'll deliver you from the Philistines. God will care for you. God will save you. God will rescue you. And then in verse five, there's something of a formal ceremony to drive home their real repentance. Samuel, as he's likely gone through all of Israel calling people to repentance, gets a sense that there is great momentum now. And he calls the people to Mizpah. And there is fasting and there's confession of sin and there's this brokenness and there's this calling out to the Lord collectively among the people of God. And and Samuel is leading the way as he's proclaiming the word of God. And God is at work and God is moving. Friends, real repentance leads to the worship of the one true and living God. That's what's going on here. They collectively confess their sin. We have sinned against the Lord, they're saying. We've done wrong, we've, we've broken covenant, and they recognize Samuel's authority to judge over them. Remember, Samuel is this unique individual. He is a judge of the people, but in many ways, he's a prophet of God for the people, and in other ways, he is a priest. He's a priest who will offer sacrifices, a priest who will pray for the people. This is Samuel, and he's leading in the moment at the congregation of those who are gathered at Mizpah, and there is a worship service happening here, and there is confession of sin, and there is fasting, and there is a turning to the Lord. There is a trusting in the Lord. Concerning genuine sorrow that leads to real repentance, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, we read some of this earlier, for what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you? But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. In other words, because God is at work in their lives, because they're hearing the word of God and they're repenting of their sin, they want to be different. They recognize their sin. Friends, no one in this room will genuinely repent if you do not recognize your sin. If you don't understand that your sin is ultimately against the one true and living God, then you will not repent. You will not turn from sin and turn to the Lord because godly grief always recognizes that sin is ultimately against the holy God. And the brokenness that results from it is because there is a genuine sense of guilt before God. And then you wanna change. You want things to be different. You want to be right with God. You want to live for him and according to his ways. Everything else is just lip service. We can tell people that we're seeking the Lord while we're harboring sin in our lives, and it doesn't work. It's not the same. It's not real repentance. No, but the word of God and the spirit of God pierces our soul and our hearts, and it reminds us of our great brokenness, our great sin, And it causes us to want to be different, to want to change, to to want to move in the direction of righteousness and to live according to the will and the ways of our great God. Don't miss this, friends. Real repentance is both a turning from sin and a turning to righteousness, a turning to God. 
Samuel calls them to put away their idols in the Ashtoreth and, and to turn to the Lord with their whole hearts. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. He says, uh, he's, he's talking about the change that has been taking place because of the power of the word of God in the life of the believers there. How upon the believing of the gospel, their believing of the gospel, they have turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. So there's a whole new dynamic taking place there in, in the church amongst the people there. In other words, they weren't hoping in anything else to be made right with God except for their trust in Jesus Christ. No more life built on anything else other than the blood of Jesus Christ and his righteousness. It's a turning from idols, a turning from sin, a turning from dependence on anything else on our own goodness, or anything else, only Jesus. Church, real repentance means action. Real repentance means action. Real repentance means turning our backs on sinful thoughts and sinful pursuits and sinful practices it means saying no to those things that so easily entangle us. And while this doesn't mean sinless perfection, it does mean that there is a genuine battle with sin. It means that we're moving away from sin. It means that we no longer love our sin, but we love our Lord and we wanna live for him. No, we're not perfect, but it means the status quo is no longer okay. It means we recognize how far we've fallen and how much we need the grace of God and how we long to live for the glory of God. Friends, in what area of your life is God calling you to real repentance? In what area of your life is God calling you to real repentance? What is he leading you right now? What is he putting on your heart and mind to turn from in your life? And we know where we turn to, we turn to him. We turn to truth. If we want God to move, then we have to stop toying with sin. If we want God to move in our own lives, then we have to stop toying with sin. If we want God to move in our church, then we have to stop toying with sin. If we want God to move in our community, then we have to stop minimizing sin. We have to seek him. But all you can do is worry about yourself. Not your wife, not your husband, not your kids. Yes, you should pray for them, but you can't repent for them. You can repent for yourself and your own sin. So what is it right now that God is leading you to turn from? What is he saying to you? What is he impressing upon your heart right now? Where have you gone astray? Secondly, I want you to see real dependence Real dependence. Let's look at verse, verses 7 through 11. So they're having this worship service in verse 7. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. 
And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And when they were and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as Beth Car. So the Philistines send out their spy balloons, okay? And they see this, they see this big gathering there at Mizpah. And maybe the Philistines are thinking, oh, they're getting ready for battle. They're getting ready for war, so we gotta jump on it. We gotta get to it right now. We gotta, we gotta get to them before they come to us. So the worship service that was taking place there is about to be interrupted by the Philistines who were coming for blood. They were coming for war. Notice how different the response is to what we saw in chapter four at Ebenezer and Aphek. In chapter four, the Israelites were overconfident. They said, hey, let's just, let's just go to battle. Well, they lost the first battle. And then they said, oh, I know what we can do. Let's go get the ark of God. If we go get the ark of God, then God has to fight for us. Then the victory is secured. So let's just go do that. Well, they were routed again. But notice this time, they weren't overconfident. They didn't try to manipulate God. Instead, what they did was they humbled themselves and they depended on God. They were afraid. Samuel, don't stop praying for us. We have no hope. We have no hope. Pray that God would do something in our lives. Pray that God would rescue us. Pray that God would change us. Pray that God would move amongst us. Their only hope was that God would do something incredible. They understood their utter dependence on God. Don't miss the faith here. By the way, you can be afraid and still have faith. They were afraid, but they knew where their salvation came from. Their salvation came from the one true and living God. Don't stop praying for us, Samuel, that the Lord would save us, that the Lord would deliver us. Don't stop calling out to God on our behalf. They trusted in God alone. And that's exactly what Samuel does, right? He keeps praying, he keeps worshiping, he offers this nursing lamb as a sacrifice to the Lord, consumed as a burnt sacrifice. He prays that God would go before his people. And then in verses 10 and 11, the Philistines come to attack, but the Lord thunders with a mighty sound that threw them into confusion. The Lord is fighting. The Lord is doing the battle here, and they were defeated. Commentators argue that this may have been a sudden storm or perhaps high winds or lightning or hail. We actually don't know exactly what it is, but we do know this, that God brought the victory. And in the back of my mind, I hear Phil Wickham's song, Battle Belongs. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. When all I see is the mountain, you see the mountain moved. As I walk through the shadow, your love surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. So when I fight, I'll fight on my knees with my hands lifted high. Oh God, the battle belongs to you. And every fear I lay at your feet. And I'll sing through the night, oh God, the battle belongs to you. The people of God had nowhere else to turn. 
They were humble before God and they cried out to him. They depended on him. This is real dependence. It wasn't about manipulating God. It wasn't about strategizing some great battle plan. It was God help. And that's the only hope we have, that God would help. So in the battle we face every day, we need God's strength and we need God's grace, don't we? In the spiritual war that rages, we're called to be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might and to put on the armor of God that we might be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And friends, this necessarily means that we give ourselves to prayer. This necessarily means that we draw nearer to the Lord. That he would break the chain of sin in our life. That he would shine the light of the gospel into the dark recesses of our hearts. That in our marriages, in our parenting, in our blood counts, and in our struggles, we would trust the Lord. That we would pray, that we would seek him, that we would trust him for whatever. And while God may call us to an active role, I mean, verse 11, it's very clear that the Israelites pursued the enemy, right? It's very clear. Let us never forget that it's God who's fighting for us. It's the Lord who's battling for us. That the battle belongs to the Lord and we are dependent on him for everything. Even as a church, friends, we need to embrace the fact that we are dependent on God for everything. You know, we can strategize and we can study the culture and we can offer meaningful options, but none of it matters if we're not seeking the Lord and if he is not at work. Okay? None of it matters if we are not seeking the Lord and the Lord is not at work. Who cares how relevant we are? Who cares how great our music sounds? If we are not seeking the Lord and if the Lord is not working amongst us, then we have no hope. And we offer no hope to anyone. So we pray and we seek him. Gospel fruitfulness doesn't depend on our creativity or our giftedness, it always depends on God. Well, finally, we see real remembrance, real remembrance. Let's look at verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israelites and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. And he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So Israel defeats the Philistines in this battle. In fact, we're told that even during this time that the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines during the days of Samuel, that Israel experienced great victories. They had won back territories that they had lost, and there was even peace with other peoples in the area. And this victory over the Philistines, because of this, Samuel is going to set up an altar of remembrance. So he calls the stone altar Ebenezer. 
which is a way to recall the greatness of our God, right? How the Lord had blessed them, how the Lord had secured victory, how, how he has helped to this day. Samuel says, till now the Lord has helped us. What does that mean? What is the till now? Is that since the time of their repentance and now the Lord is helping them? Maybe, that's what a lot of commentators believe, but, but actually I think it goes much further. Even when Israel is rebelling against God, God is doing things to help them. He's bringing trial and difficulty into their lives. He's allowing them to be defeated by the enemy. Well, that doesn't sound like help, Pastor. Well, what, they're, what God is doing is showing them their own weakness. What God is doing is showing them how far they've fallen and how much they need his grace. He's setting up the circumstances into their lives to where they have nowhere else to turn. Right? Rock bottom can be a help from the Lord because it says, I have nothing else. Where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go? And that's what's happening in the life of Israel. Through all this time, through all the rebellion, the Lord has helped them and now they're seeing it. They're finally seeing it and they're finally turning back to the Lord. They're turning to him. The Lord is, at, is helping them. And I think, friends, that we have to understand that God wants us to see how cruel and how difficult and how empty life is apart from him. And that is the grace of God. Maybe some of us are in that place right now in this room. Apart from the grace of God. Apart from his mercy. Apart from his kindness. And you're recognizing you're broken. One of the lessons we learn is that God will forgive if we come to him in faith and repentance. Every time we humble ourselves and draw near to God, every time we are humbly confessing our sin and seeking him, he responds by giving grace every time. And we need to remember that. Samuel set up this stone memorializing that God had helped them. And how important is it for us to remember that God has helped us? That he has served us. That he has been faithful and good to us. That his grace has been sufficient for us, for our every need. We would be wise to set up various reminders along the way. Reminders of how he is true to his word. Reminders to the fact that he is powerful and faithful. Reminders to the fact that he is good and gracious. And that we've experienced this in our lives. Sometimes, friends, living in the past is not the worst thing. As long as we're doing so to remind us of the truth of what God has done. Apostle Paul agrees. Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the kindness of our God our Savior appeared, and Savior appeared. He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior. Remember who you were, and remember who you are today because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And don't miss the imagery. As 
the Philistines were approaching and as the Israelites cry out to Samuel that Samuel would continue to pray, Samuel takes that nursing lamb and he offers it as a sacrifice. And friends, Jesus is the lamb of God. He's the one who is consumed by the wrath of God on our behalf that we might escape the wrath of God ourselves. Jesus died in our place so that we might experience God's mercy, so that we might experience God's grace. And just as Israel drew near to God in repentance and faith, and God proved to be their deliverer, friends, we must draw near to God through repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And God will save us based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So today, friends, cry out to God in real repentance. Draw near to him in real dependence and recall his mercy and his grace in your life. For he is the strong tower and he is the refuge for sinners. He's our refuge. He's the only refuge. Will you pray with me? Lord, today we confess that we need you. We're not as strong as we think we are. We're certainly not as good as we wish we were, but you're perfect. And today, we confess that we need you. And we confess that you are our only hope. And we confess today that life is not easy, but you are greater and bigger. And you are the solid rock upon which we stand. So Jesus, today, would you do your work in our lives? Spirit of God, would you do our work of of helping us to see our great God for who he is? And today, Lord, there are people here who are in desperate need of repenting and turning to you. God, would you do that in our lives right now? Would you grant that in our lives right now? Would we be... Get serious with you right now. As we draw near to you, would you draw near to us? For your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Friends, we're going to have a time here of just surrender to the Lord. We're going to seek him. We're going to sing. Allow the truth of these words to enter into your heart and mind. Focus on the glory of our great God and the hope that is found because of who he is. If you have questions about the gospel, if you have questions about uh, your spiritual life or where you are right now, we're available to talk with you. If you're interested in joining this church, we'd love to connect with you about how that can happen. If you're online and you're watching and you have questions, fill out that connect card. Ask a question. There'll be a place for you to ask questions. If you just need prayer, come. Maybe you just want to come pray at the altar. Maybe that's what you want to do. Take the time now to do that even here. We believe that God's at work. So how's he work in your life today? Would you stand and would you sing?